Exclusive Books Homebrew is a celebration of the diversity that is local writing, covering fresh perspectives on history, sharing never-told-before personal stories, challenging established views, and excavating the trough of political policy. Exclusive Books Homebrew. Not the same old story. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. Today's guest is a one-stop melting pot. Koji Bafu's mother was German and his father Ghanaian. He grew up in Lesotho, and while he has traveled all over the world, he lives in South Africa. Over the years, he's been what he calls a slashy, an Olympic 100-meter gold medalist hopeful, budding entrepreneur, wannabe soapy star, editor, radio talk show host, Afro-haver, poet, podcaster, and writer. The thread that runs through Kojo's creative life is that he's a natural-born storyteller. He has published two collections of poetry and has now written a memoir, Listen to Your Footsteps, which is a collection of essays, thoughts, observations, and poems of the lessons he has learned about being a son and about being a father, about loss, about identity, about belonging and not belonging, about relationships, friendships, love, life, and all the good, bad, and messy bits in between. Welcome to the Homebrew Podcast. Koto, please can you read us an extract from Listen to Your Footsteps? Thank you, Jonathan. The extract I'm going to read is On the Edge. I read Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd when I was in high school, and the title has always stuck with me. Although it is probably as much for the idea of a madding crowd as it was for embarrassing myself in English class because of it. We were supposed to have written a composition on it, and because I hadn't actually read it, I read the first two chapters and the last chapter and wrote an essay that totally missed the mark. To feel alone amidst the madding crowd can be a painful place to be. And for large portions of my life, that is how I felt. Alone, sometimes lonely, amongst people, even with people who are supposed to be my people. This goes as far back as I can remember to the photograph of me in the middle of people as a toddler. The concept of belonging is strange. The world can see you as belonging, but more important is how you see yourself. I have never felt like I fully belonged anywhere. In my family, I'm the white sheep, the only one with a white mother, the only one with European heritage, my mother's only child. We weren't raised that way. We were all buffer children, raised as siblings without any step in the mix. I still felt different because I was different. And there were elements of their lives beyond the home that I wasn't part of. I was fortunate to travel at a young age and attend such a culturally diverse school that my influences have always been broad, overlapping but not always in line with the people I grew up with. At Varsity, I was the Sesotho-speaking, not-colored guy who lived in res, surrounded by and socializing with mainly black people. I can never run away from me, because there's only one half-German, half-Ghanian Mosoto with a typical Ghanaian name. Plus, culturally, I'm a mishmash of all of these often drawing from what makes sense to me and discarding what doesn't. If someone said they had heard of me, it was probably me they were talking about and not a case of mistaken identity. I was considered a pretty boy for most of my adolescence and even into my 20s, and that also drew attention when I preferred to lurk on the edges, entering spaces quietly and sussing out the space before actually engaged. 
Getting involved in the poetry scene forced me to learn how to stand up in front of people. And being involved in the media, especially Destiny Man, meant that I had to get comfortable with hosting and speaking at a range of events. I still get very nervous before I have to get up in front of people and like to arrive early just to get comfortable with the energy in the room. Poetry and Destiny Man brought with them a bit of a public profile in South Africa. And yet, despite being considered South African in some spaces, when it boils down to it, I am a foreigner, which often crops up when it comes to doing any type of work that would be easier if I was BEE compliant. I've heard the comment, by the way, you're not South African, countless times, and it always reminds me of my otherness. I've worked in so many different industries that I could never define myself according to my job and never quite belonged to any specific community, which has allowed me to traverse multiple spaces. Estelle used to throw me surprise birthday parties to my chagrin, and the thing that always stood out was that the people invited often came from very different worlds and would under normal circumstances not cross paths. This was of course before social media. Being an immigrant in Lesotho, I have been considered not Mosotho enough. Having grown up outside of Ghana my whole life, in some quarters, I'm not Ghanaian enough. There have been instances, particularly when I've accomplished things deemed of value, when I've been claimed by those places. The Germans have never claimed me. However, there's still time. There was a time when all of this really bothered me. But as I've grown older, I've learned to embrace my otherness because that is what has enabled me to do some of the things I've done and giving me perspectives that help me contribute to those around me in ways that others can't. This idea of being other, of not quite belonging anywhere, yet belonging everywhere, is now a source of pride. Wow. I have to start this discussion by extending an apology to you, because in the second paragraph of your book, you write that you try not to reread your own writing once it has been put out into the world. <laughs> but I mean... Your writing is so good and what you've read is just so well-crafted that I want to know, why are you self-conscious? I don't know why. Like, it's when I go back over it, even even in reading the extract now, um, I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, I put an extra it in there. I shouldn't have put that it in there. Like, um, I could have done that sentence slightly better. But one of the things that I've learned is that for that moment, it's what it's meant to be for that moment. And... Every time I come back to it, I'm going to constantly kind of go, okay, I could have improved it like this, or I could have improved it like that. And so it's it's finding that balance between that. But looking at anything that I've written, even a week a week later, yeah, <laughs> it's, uncom- it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Listen to your footsteps, documents the lessons that you've learned on your life's journey. Writing the book itself is another journey, though. So what lessons did you learn from writing this book in other words, what lessons did you learn from writing about the lessons you learned? <laughs> I th- well, I think it, it forced me to, one, articulate them and make sense of them. But it also reinforced what I just said about kind of moments in time. Because even as I was writing the book, particularly because I write about things that are constantly changing. I mean, so, for example, being a father and and just kind of navigating parenting and, you know, children change constantly. So I was finding that I'd write something. And then one of my children would say or do something that forced me to then reflect on the conclusions I had drawn a month ago. Um, so I guess it's, in a way, it's an exercise in reminding yourself that you need to be present and 
when things happen in that moment, it's all right. And if you have a evolving perspective down the line, that's also all right. You actually want that because it means you're learning and you're growing. So it was constantly reinforcing and learning the lessons that I've learned in writing about them. <laughs> your mother passed away when you were a toddler and you were raised by your father, whose presence is felt throughout the book. What do you think his reaction would have been to your book? Um, well, one, he would have been proud. Two, I suspect there are one or two things that I wrote about in the book that I wouldn't have been able to write about if he'd still been alive. A, a friend of my father's, having read the book, sent me a message and said, if I had known that you know, your father was going through such hard times in certain instances, maybe I'd have reached out. But at the same time, your father was somebody who always seemed to have a handle on things. And so because of that, he I think he shared a lot less of his vulnerability to the outside world. I mean, I was fortunate in that I got to see it and I got to experience it to a certain extent. But in terms of the outside world, looking, you know, how people viewed him, um, he was very cognizant of, you know, you, you fight your battles on your own. You fight your battles with the people that you need to fight the battles. You don't need to announce them to the world. I know that there are one or two things he would have been like, eh. Um, <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, I didn't know that. Like, I'm like, well, you're not, you're not here to give me grief. So I'm just going to do it. But I suppose that's the thing about memoirs. They are personal. You attach your heart to your sleeve and lay bare your life for all to see, revealing intimate details about your life. Does this make you vulnerable? Um, so when I was in the poetry scene, one of my favorite quotes from, and I'll paraphrase, um, Saul Williams, uh, he said that, Rappers hide their vulnerability and, and poets put their, their vulnerability at the forefront. I do think that, you know, I share things that other people wouldn't necessarily share. And I guess it is vulnerable to a certain extent, but also the way I look at what's, what I hold close to my chest and what I hold close to me. I have just found that over the years, other people may not consider that a big deal. And what I don't consider a big deal. So I share what I'm comfortable sharing. And I've also realized that other people interpret that as, you know, I've shared my deepest, darkest secrets. And it's like, there's actually other stuff in there that I will never share. And, and this, what I share, I'm very comfortable with it. I'm very conscious and very deliberate about what I put out into the world and what I hold for myself. But of course, you, you're not the only character in the book. And writing a memoir is a careful balance between sharing enough information so that it's honest and not oversharing. Um, so, for example, Estelle, how does she feel about you writing about her? She, she, I mean, she, she married me. Like, I've been married for 19 <laughs> years, right? And, and I've, been writing for, I've been writing for as long. So I think to a certain extent, she kind of, she has a sense of what she was getting into. And, and, and there are particular things that I wrote about that I've chatted to her about, you know, to go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to talk about that. So I was very conscious of that. I was also especially conscious of it with regards to my children, um, Kweku and Ayana, because they are still, you know, the problem with the social media world is that as parents, sometimes we, we can take away the journey of finding yourself and, and crafting kind of your identity and how the world sees you. And so I try to be very conscious of, yes, I do share stuff about my children, but I am going to also hold back on a lot because that's their journey. 
right? Uh, it's not my place to now go and lay their entire lives bare. Because as they evolve and as they find themselves and as they craft their identity and their personalities, um, they should have the liberty of, like I did, like we all did, like older generations in terms of, you know, who I, who I am when I was 12 versus who I am at 49. I have had the liberty of being able to decide what I'm going to share with the world. And I wanted to give them that space as well. So they are too young to have read it. Um, I think you write that and you consciously say that in the book. But when they do eventually read it, what do you hope they take from it? Well, the, my son Kuku started reading it. I think he got bored. Uh, so he's, I mean, he's 14 <laughs> years old and he, he has the, I, I do think that he has the maturity to a certain extent to kind of grasp certain things. And I do write about it in the book, but what I hope that they get from it is, you know, they had a father who who will always try to do the best that he can. He won't always get it right. And he will make mistakes along the way. But the intention and the commitment and the love is to ensure that I can provide them with whatever tools they need to be able to navigate and craft their life in the same way that my father, in the same way that as a 30-year-old or 20-year-old, 30-year-old, my father passed away when I was what, 45. So we had like we had a good run together, and it was enough time for me to realize that you know he best, he did the best that he could, and he was flawed like every human being is flawed. Um, but overall, by and large, I couldn't have asked for. He was meant to be my father, and I was meant to be his son. And I hope that my children, like my children, will realize that, and also realize that I grapple every day with whether I'm doing the right thing for them. What was the process like of revisiting your childhood and your youth? How did you remain true to your memories? Memories are a weird thing, right? Uh, because we don't always remember things as they were, uh, which is something that I've realized. Because also, if you tell, if you repeatedly tell the story of a particular moment or a particular memory, you start to infuse it with, with the color that comes with storytelling. But what I did was I essentially allowed what came to the fore to be what guided me in the process. So I'd literally, I'd get a thought and just sit down and write on that thought. So I, I didn't sit and kind of go, let me look back over, you know, over my life and look for moments. And I, I, you know, I just sat every day and, and wrote and sat in the space that I'm writing a book. This is what the book is. And then whatever, whatever things cropped up, I would let those guide me. So, I mean, I write about, for example, a dining room table. And that literally, I mean, we have a dining room. You know, we have a dining room, we have a dining room table, but we don't use it a lot. And the one evening, I literally just, I was having supper on my own. And so I grabbed my plate, dished my food, and I didn't sit at my desk. And I thought, I'll just sit at the dining room table. And then I had flashbacks to, you know, setting the table as a child. And when those rare moments when, as a family, we would sit around the table. And I let those things guide me, as opposed to sitting and kind of trying to document and remember every single thing. You also wrote that when you read a book, it's like having a conversation with the author. And so I was wondering, when you wrote the book, were you having conversations with your readers? And if so, who were your readers? Did you have a reader in mind? I did not have a reader in mind. I find it's a very difficult one to answer, purely because one of the things I've learned working in the media is that whenever I thought I had a handle on who was engaging with what I was creating, somebody would crop up that was 
totally divorced from from that. Uh, uh, I think I write about meeting somebody at a random petrol station and them following my poetry, or you know, going to an event and the waiter the waiter coming up to me and going, "I really enjoy your radio show." That helped me realize that yes, in this world where we kind of go, "Who's your target market?" Who's we try to be so I guess strategic with everything. Uh, for me, my hope is that human beings who are going through a journey in life, hopefully they will find something in there. One of the things I also recognized is, and I, I got this from poetry as well as editing a magazine, is that somebody does not have to like every single word on the page. When I was doing poetry, I'd, you know, I'd get up and perform a five-minute poem, and then somebody would say to me, I loved those two lines. And in the beginning, I was like, but I wrote this whole thing. There's so much commitment to it. But in realizing that, and I do the same, like as long as you find something that resonates with you, it provides you with enough value to justify you engaging with any piece of work. That for me is what I'm looking for, you know, but at the end of the day, I guess it's, it's men, it's fathers, it's women, just in terms of trying to understand some of the questions that some of us men ask ourselves. And then it's also, yeah, identity. I mean, identity is a big thing for me because I live in a part of the world where I've been forced to engage with it constantly from, you know, my complexion to the texture of my hair to my name. You know, my kids have, like my son has a, they both have Ghanaian names. My wife Estelle is from the Eastern Cape and she's colored and going to school and them having to, watching them navigate school, like Heritage Day. I mean, we have Heritage Day coming up again, but Heritage Day where, you know, I told my son, well, take in, you know, take Frankfurter and Bratwurst, you know, and sauerkraut for, because that was the easiest thing to take. And, and them going, okay, but this name, we don't know where this name is from. And then he's coming with German food. Like, what is that? And I think this country is, still has a way to go in that becoming the norm. You know, I always say in Europe, in Europe, I'm not an anomaly. And even in West Africa, I'm not an anomaly. Um, because, yeah, you know, West Africans traveled the world from, from the 50s onwards and found spouses of other nationalities and other races and other cultural backgrounds. Um, so, yeah. As a storyteller, you use many creative mediums. You're a podcaster, poetry, although I saw that you said you were a retired poet. Mm. Um, you write features and now books, and the book is interspersed with poetry. And yeah. um, I'm going to have to apologize for this, but I would love it if you could read one of your poems from the book. <laughs> I, could do, I could do that. I could find one. Let's see which, whichever one crops up. I mean, how's that? Okay. Um, that's perfect. Well, our heroes, that's the first one that I popped onto. All right. Our heroes may be flawed like we all are, but our heroes, they remain for their sacrifice, for the life they live, for the hope they birth in us, for the path they carve, for the example. Thank you. Very, sh very short one. <laughs> Finally, music has played a big role in your life. So what do you recommend people listen to when they read Listen to Your Footsteps? Oh, wow. So <laughs> I am trying to, I've been working on a playlist, which the idea was eventually to become a series of playlists for the book. Um, and I have literally spent six months trying to figure out what music to put into. And, and <laughs> because, because I listened to such a diverse range of music. So there wasn't even a very specific soundtrack to, to what I was listening to when I was writing because Every day changes. I mean, this this morning alone, I've probably been through 80s pop, 
early 80s R&B, reggae and raga. And that's just this morning so far in terms of working. <laughs> uh, so so, so I, I think it's really about whatever you feel in that particular moment, because that's what I do. Like when I go to sleep, I'll sit and flip through my phone and go, okay, what music do I want to fall asleep to? If I'm going to go on a drive, I'll get in the car and I'll go, okay, what, what music do I want to take this particular drive to? So it's allow yourself to kind of go outside of, outside of what you'd normally listen to. And literally, I mean, we have music, the advantage of music streaming is that you can find all kinds of obscure and random things. It's allow yourself, I'd say, allow yourself to find the obscure. Listen to Your Footsteps is a book of reflections and essays that tries to make sense of a world that most of the time doesn't make sense. It's a thoughtful, compelling, and authentic memoir by a natural-born storyteller. Thank you, Kojo. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homebrew. Do you have a question you'd like to ask our homebrew authors? Send us your question and you could win a 200 Rand exclusive books voucher if yours gets chosen. WhatsApp a voice note to 079-664-0465. That's 079-664-0465. Or email social media at exclusivebooks.co.za. To find out who our upcoming authors are, just follow Exclusive Books on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This homebrew podcast was produced by Jonathan Anser, Dan Dews, and Lerato Sebanda for Exclusive Books. Books available in-store and online at exclusivebooks.co.za. Homebrew, not the same old story. Homebrew.